Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 16. And you will need your Bible throughout this message today because we're going to depend heavily on the Word of God. And it's not going to be so much a sermon as it is let the Word of God speak for itself. Now, we are privileged today to return to this 16th chapter and this most important text in Scripture. And we're going to read this text in just a moment. Uh, And it's one of those passages that preachers really dream of. Uh, You just love to preach from this because it concerns the lifeblood of our profession. Uh, As you can see from the title of the message, I'm going to talk to you today about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have my job And I am a pastor because of this living organism that Christ uh, founded when he was here in his earthly ministry. The church has organization and it has officers. The officers are pastors and deacons. And so I'm standing here uh, before you to preach the word of God because Christ did begin this wonderful organism created to glorify him. Now, before we get to the text verses today, I want to remind you of a passage that was spoken by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, where he wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Jesus Christ is to receive glory through the church. And so if you want to know why it exists, if you want to know what the primary purpose of the Lord's church is, we find it in this passage that it is to glorify Jesus Christ. Now in our reading today, we're going to back up to verse number 13 in this 16th chapter. And we've already discussed verses 13 through 17. And that's where we find the great confession that Peter made that when Jesus asked him, Whom say ye that I am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, in order to establish the context for what comes afterwards, we're going to go back to verse number 13 and we'll read down to verse number 20. So, if you'll stand with me once again for the reading of God's Word, we look at Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was the Christ. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. And we ask you, Lord, to open up this text before us us so we clearly understand what you have intended for us to learn today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our study of Galatians on Wednesday evenings, 
We've been studying the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, which is justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this is a doctrine that is the battleground, a battleground in church history, because it's so foundational to the truth that to deny the justification of sinners by faith alone in Jesus Christ is to deny the gospel itself. When you destroy that great doctrine, you also destroy the gospel of Christ. Now, as good students of God's word, we are aware that there are certain doctrines that Satan works harder at trying to destroy than he does others. There are some doctrines that Satan tries to undermine, and he spends a lot of time trying to tear those doctrines down in order to keep people from understanding the truth and to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. And... uh, there, there are certain things that we know in the Christian faith and certain doctrines that we believe and practice that will not seriously affect our salvation if we don't understand the truth of those doctrines. Now, we do want to understand truth. We always want to know the truth. We want to practice truth. But there are some things that are in the Word of God that are just simply not as important as other things. Now, today's passage is one of those places where we find critical truth This is truth about the Lord's church, and it's a truth that is so important that Jesus inserted a special notation about it, and he said that Satan would not be able to destroy God's church. Now, though he may assail it, and though he may bring against it the very worst of his devices, which he in fact does, he does not have the ability to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now... I hope that you understand that that we do live in a world of temporary things. We live in a time of disposable things. Uh, Since the invention of plastics and the increased versatility of paper products, much of what is produced is intended to be thrown away. It doesn't last very long. So when you're through with it, you throw it away. Now, if you're the mother of a newborn child or a one under two years old, you're very thankful for disposable products because now you don't have to wash out all those dirty diapers. You just throw them away, and there's a fresh one waiting for you in the box. A few years ago, when my wife and I were shopping for some new furniture, we were looking for something that was durable and hopefully would be the last time that we would have to buy furniture. We're getting kind of old now. And um, we wanted something that would last and we would never have to buy furniture again. But when we went to the store, the salesman was very clear about this. He said that furniture is just like everything else today. They don't make it to last. It's disposable. When you use it, you throw it away. And we found that to be true because furniture that we looked at five years ago and purchased at a ransom price could stand to be replaced. Now, furniture is not the only thing that's temporary. In fact, there are some things, there are some very significant things that people thought were so important that you simply couldn't live without them. For instance, there have been great civilizations that men have invented. There have been great kingdoms and there have been great governments. Even the government of our own United States. There have been great cities and there have been great institutions. And yet all of those, as we look at them, all of them are subject to change, to decay, to corruption and passing away. And if we place our hope in those things, we are doomed to disappointment and failure. 
And so there's a question that needs to be asked to all of us today. Is there something that we can place our faith in? Is there something that we can have our hope in that is guaranteed not to fail? Is there something that will last as long as we last and even beyond us so that our children can have it and our grandchildren can have it until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again? Well, there is. We can place our hope in God's church. Now understand what I mean by that. To place your hope in the church is to place it in Jesus Christ himself because he's the one upon whom the church is built. And so I don't mean when you place your faith or your hope in the church that you place it in the brick and mortar of a building. And I don't mean that you place all of your hope in the ordinances of the church, your baptism and and taking communion. And I don't mean that you are to place your hope in the pastor or the people of the church. But I mean that when you place your hope in something, put it in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one upon whom the church is built. Now we see the critical nature of the church in the ways that Satan has tried to destroy it. And we have evidence of that, that Satan attempts to destroy God's church. He tries to destroy God's doctrines. And one of the doctrines that he tries to destroy, we find right here in this passage of Scripture. And I'm sure that you've read it through many times. And though it is so critical, yet you might not completely understand what's being said in these verses. What Satan has done is to confuse people over the misinterpretation of this very important passage. Now, there is one organization in the world today that's very old. It's an old one, and it claims to be the true church of the living God. And they affirm that Christ is the one who founded the church, and that is a true statement because we find it right here in this text. They also say that Christ has given the church the authority to govern the world and to teach mankind. That is a half-truth. That's a partial truth. They say that since they are the true church, that they have the authority of God to admit souls into the kingdom of God or to keep people out of the kingdom of God. And that's completely untrue. That is a pure fabrication. In fact, that is heretical doctrine. And it's one of the lies that Satan uses to deceive people to follow a false religion that brings them to hell. And all of those false interpretations come out of this passage. So you can see how important it is that we get it right. This huge, monstrous organization that has done so much damage to the truth of Scripture and to the glory of Jesus Christ is the Roman Catholic Church. And their error begins in this passage with the first statement that Jesus made in verse 18 where he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, we're going to spend all of our time today with that statement. What did Jesus mean when he said, Upon this rock, I will build my church? So we're going to take this first part of the message, and we'll continue for a couple of more Sunday mornings. And we're going to talk today, number one, about the placement of the church's foundation. The placement of the church's foundation. Now, I want to take you back for just a moment to the seventh chapter in Matthew. And this is to the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you turn your Bibles there, we'll have it on the screen for you, but it'd be good for you to look in the Scriptures uh, today at chapter 7 in Matthew. And you'll recognize that this part of the sermon is the basis for a song that's often used in children's Sunday school classes. 
And in the 24th verse, this is what Jesus says. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, I don't want to spend time in this passage today to get into all the details, but I want you to notice that Jesus said, a man, a wise man, builds his house upon a rock. A wise man takes care to make sure that the foundation of his house is solid. A wise man builds his house in order to withstand the storms that come against it, to weather the floods that come against it, all those things that can cause that house to fall. The wise man is very careful that he builds his house in the right place with the right foundation so it withstands all of the weather events that come against it. Now, when Jesus said that he would build his church, he was very concerned about the foundation on which it would be built. It has to be the strongest foundation possible. There is going to be the greatest destructive forces that will be brought against it. We find here that even hell itself is against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our text says that Christ will build his church. Where does he build it? What is the foundation upon which the church is built? And that's the text question here. We need to find out what does it mean because this text has led people to so much confusion about it. So we're going to take some time this morning to examine different ideas about what the word rock here means. When Jesus said, I will build my church up on the rock in Matthew 16, 18, what exactly does that mean? Well, first we have the interpretation of Roman Catholicism. So we're going to look at interpretations of the rock. And Roman Catholicism says that the rock is Peter. That Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock. Peter, you are the person that I'm going to build my church on. That's the interpretation of Roman Catholicism. And this is the place where they draw the inference that Peter was the first pope. And their interpretation says that Peter was given primacy. Or in other words, that Jesus separated out Peter from the rest of the apostles and made him the chief apostle. And so Peter became the first pope and all the other popes would be in a line of apostolic succession from Peter. And so that makes Peter the head of all the government of the church. Now today, the Roman Catholic Church claims that the pope speaks in the place of Christ. He is called the vicar of Christ. Now, this is the definition of vicar of Christ, and I take it directly from the Catholic Encyclopedia. It comes from the Latin vicarius Christi, and it means a title of the Pope implying his supreme and universal primacy, both of honor and jurisdiction, over the Church of Christ. Now, we need to take a look at that statement. We need to judge that by the Scripture. Did Jesus choose Peter to be the foundation of his church? And did Jesus give primacy to Peter over all of the other apostles? J.C. Ryle, a churchman from the 19th century, posed this question. Does it mean that the apostle Peter himself was to be the foundation on which Christ's church was to be built? 
Such an interpretation, to say the least, appears exceedingly improbable. To speak of an erring, fallible child of Adam as the foundation of the spiritual temple is very unlike the ordinary language of Scripture. Now that statement forms the basis for the first objection against the interpretation that, G- that Peter is the rock on whom Jesus built the church. That first objection is this, that Peter was fallible. Peter was not an infallible person. Now there's no doubt that Peter was a great man. It's hard for us to criticize him. At the time of his death, he he was willing to stand up and to be counted for Christ. He was willing to die for him. Tradition says that when Peter was taken to be crucified, that he refused to be, or asked not to be crucified in the same manner that Christ was, but rather he said, crucify me upside down. Now, we don't have anything in the scripture that tells us that that is true, but we do have an indication from Jesus' own words in John 21, verse number 18, that Peter was crucified. But as we look at the life of Peter, rather than just looking at how he died, if we look at the life of Peter, we tend to think of Peter as one perpetual mistake. That Peter was a disciple that often spoke without thinking. That Peter often got things wrong. When Jesus took the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you'll find this in chapter 17, uh, Peter wanted to speak when Peter should have been quiet. And you can see that at the beginning of the chapter. There, Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, and he gave them a glimpse of his glory. And Peter thought, I just have to say something. And he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. And that means tents or build three booths. He said, let's build three of those. Let's build one for you and let's build one for Elijah and let's build one for Moses. But Peter was interrupted by God the Father who spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, I don't want to read anything into the text But it seems that God is saying to Peter, Peter, zip it. Now's not the time for you to talk. You need to listen to the Son of God. Now, I I don't know what it must have been like to be reprimanded audibly by the Father who speaks from heaven. And there are several of these instances that we find in Scripture about Peter. Let me give you a few more. You remember on the night of the Lord's Supper that Jesus bent down to wash the disciples' feet. And it was Peter that stood up and he said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any part with me. And Peter, not understanding and not seeing what Jesus was teaching, said, Lord, if that's the case, then give me a bath all over. See, Peter was prone to colossal blunders and misunderstandings. And then there's one of the worst of these when Peter said that I, he said, I'm never going to deny you, Jesus. I'll never deny you, Lord. He said, I'm going to die before I deny you. And on that very same night, it wasn't just a few hours later that Peter denied him not once, but denied him three times. Does that sound like the rock that Jesus wanted to build his church on? As J.C. Ryle said, again, to, to speak of an erring, fallible child of Adam as the foundation of the spiritual temple is very unlike the ordinary language of Scripture. 
And then while you have your Bible there open to our text in Matthew 16, you can just go down a couple of more verses past where we just read, and in verse number 22, and there you'll find that Peter tried to rebuke Jesus. And that was a huge mistake. And Jesus said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. And one author said that perhaps all of the hypocrisy of the church can be found here, that if Christ built his church on Peter, then he's the one that made the colossal blunder because he built it on a weak foundation. Peter was fallible. And that's an objection that we have, that he could have been the rock on which Jesus built his church. Well, there's another objection to the interpretation. Secondly, is the disciples' understanding of it. Did the disciples, the other disciples, did they have the understanding that Peter had been selected to be above them? Now, I want you to note that when Peter answered the question in verse number 16, when Jesus said, Whom say ye that I am? Peter answered the question, and he didn't speak up because all the other disciples said, Now, Peter, we just don't know the answer to that question. You need to answer that for us because you're the leader. You have some special insight into what God says. So please answer Jesus' question for us. No, the language is clear that Jesus asked that question of all the disciples and they all could have answered in the same way. But it becomes much clearer to us when we look at the 18th chapter of Matthew. So if you'll turn there for just a minute and we look at the beginning of chapter 18 and in verse number 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples come, and they ask Jesus, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And why didn't Jesus say, well, don't you remember? I gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter. He, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who can be greater than the one who has the keys? Well, you see, the disciples, they had no idea that Peter had been given any kind of primacy, that he was appointed over them. Then you can go two more chapters. If you look in chapter 20 and verse number 20, Matthew 20, verse 20, then came to him, that is, came to Jesus, the mother of Zebedee's children, and that is the mother of James and John. The mother of James and John, two of the apostles, came to Jesus with her sons, worshiping him, desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. And he followed that up by saying, I'm sorry, Peter already has that spot. You need to check with him and see where he wants you to sit. That wasn't Jesus' answer. And if the disciples had any idea that Peter had been given primacy of the kingdom, they never would have asked that question. And then we have another proof against Peter's primacy. Not, not just that Peter was fallible and not just that the disciples didn't have that understanding, the other ones, but also what was Peter's understanding of it? What did he think about being given primacy? Well, this is what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. 
Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. So you go to Peter and you say, Peter, are you the Pope? Peter, have you been given primacy over the church of God? And Peter says, no, no, I'm just one of the elders. I'm just another one just like you. I've witnessed the sufferings of Christ just like you. I am not the Lord over God's heritage. Peter's understanding is that he was nothing special as far as being set over God's church. Fourthly, we have another objection, and that is Paul's understanding. Now, those of you that attend Wednesday night studies, you'll recognize this from Galatians chapter 2, that Paul had to reprimand Peter for a terrible mistake that he made in mudding the waters on this very important doctrine of the Christian faith, justification by faith alone. Now remember I said that's a fundamental of Christian doctrine and I said that justification is such a critical issue that if you destroy it, you destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. Peter submarined the doctrine of justification. And so Paul reprimanded him because his actions undermined the gospel of Christ, it undermined the authority of Paul as an apostle, and it undermined the faith of the Galatian people. Now, I spent a lot of time on that. I'm not going to go into it deeply today. Uh, I've spent a dozen Sunday nights explaining that issue. But I want you to pay attention to this very important verse, Galatians 2:11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Paul rebuked Peter. And does that sound like Peter had authority over him? No, Peter accepted that rebuke. He called him a brother in the faith, and he said, Paul is an author of Holy and Spirit-inspired Scripture. So we have all of those objections. And then we could add to that that if the Roman Catholics are right about Peter, then they have to prove that Peter was the first bishop at Rome when in fact Paul was there before Peter and we don't even have any proof anywhere that Peter was actually in Rome. And then we have to prove or they have to prove that Rome is the center of the Christian faith. And they have to prove that Peter was able to transfer his authority to those who came after him. And none of that is provable. There's no book, there's no chapter, there's no verse in the Bible for any of that. Just like there is no book and no chapter and no verse for hundreds of erroneous teachings that you find in Catholicism. Now Matthew 16, 18 is actually very foundational for the Roman Catholic Church. Their foundation is built upon the fact that Peter is the rock of the church, the one upon whom the church is built, and they have their pope, and they have their offices, and they have people that are in subjection to the pope. When we find out by looking at the word of God that the foundation that they have is actually built on shifting sands. It's not upon the rock where it should be built. In the 16th century, Pope Pius IV said, nor will I ever understand it, the word, or interpret it, except according to the unanimous consent of the Holy Fathers. So he said that the only way that you can interpret Scripture is by the unanimous consent of the great Roman Catholic scholars, those that are in the past. And so he says, I'm not going to interpret Scripture unless we get the unanimous consent of the Holy Fathers of Roman Catholicism. But do you know this, folks, that the holy fathers of Roman Catholicism were not even in agreement on this most foundational verse. Chrysostom, who was the greatest preacher of Catholicism, did not believe that Peter was the rock. 
Augustine, who was the greatest theologian of Catholicism, did not believe that Peter was the rock. Jerome, who was the greatest translator of Roman Catholic scripture, did not believe that the rock was Peter. Origen, who was one of their greatest scholars, didn't agree that it was Peter. In fact, you can go back to 85 of the earliest Catholic church fathers, and there are only 17 of them that said that Peter was the rock upon which the church was built. So much for the infallibility of Pope Pius IV or any of the rest of them. How can we believe them when they can't even agree with each other? Now, secondly, now that's the Roman Catholic interpretation. We have another interpretation. What is the rock upon which Jesus built the church? Well, there are, there are those who say that Peter's confession is the rock on which the church is built. And I don't have so much trouble with this, although I don't believe that it's quite right. If we say that Christ built his church upon the confession that he is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, then I don't have a lot of trouble with that. That's the popular opinion of the Protestant churches. So if you can tie the confession to the unmistakable opinion that Christ is the one who builds the church and he builds his church upon the foundation of the apostles with him being, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, then I can give some ground to that opinion even though I don't believe it's the best opinion. Now, thinking back at this, if, if this was Peter, if Peter was the rock of the church, then why didn't Jesus say, Peter, you are the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. That would end all the confusion, wouldn't it? Or if Jesus said, Peter, this is a great confession you've just made. You're absolutely right about that, and I'm going to build my church on your confession. Jesus could have said that, and that would have cleared everything up. But Jesus did neither of those. He said, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Well, here's where we have to dig a little bit deeper into the language of Scripture to see what Jesus meant. Now remember, we have an English translation of the Greek in which the original Scriptures were written, and we cannot see all of the inferences that are in the original language. Now, the correct interpretation of the rock is that Jesus Christ is the rock upon which the church is built. Jesus himself is that rock. Well, how do we arrive at the conclusion? Well, here's our first clue to how we know that Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. Number one is the Greek terms. The Greek terms. And I've spelled it out on your listening sheet today so that you can see it very clearly. That Peter's name... Peter's name has a meaning to it, and the word is the Greek word petros. Petros, and it means a small rock. So Jesus says, thou art Peter, or you are Peter. The Greek word is petros, it means a small rock, a rock like a pebble, a break off of a larger rock, you might say. Thou art Peter, you are a small rock. Then he says, upon this rock, And there's actually a change in wording in the Greek language because rock here is a different word. It's the word petra, and it means a massive rock. So this time Jesus brings in this word petra, the massive rock, the cliff of rock, a huge rock, or may I say a foundational stone. I will build my church on this massive cliff of rock. So this is the way that the verse reads. Peter, you are a small rock. But upon this massive rock, the massive foundational rock, I will build my church. 
Now, there's some who dispute that interpretation. I'm not going to say that there aren't. Some people say, well, the original language that Jesus spoke in was Aramaic. And in the Aramaic, there is no such distinction between the two words rock. They don't have a distinction like that. Well, then I would reply to that, why did God use Greek for the translation of the Bible? Would it, could it be that God already knows these things, that there is a distinction in the Greek that is preserved so that we can know the truth of what Jesus meant? See, God's not trying to confuse us. The Bible had to be translated into a language that was understood by the vast majority of the people. And at that time, Greek lang- the Greek language was an international language. And this is why God had the New Testament translated into Greek. Now, some say, well, the English, that's superior to the Greek. We have our King James Version, and we can correct the Greek with it. Well, then you have a problem here because you have a distinction that you can't actually see in the English either. So God knew what he was doing when he had the New Testament written in the Greek language. So we have the Greek terms. That helps us to understand what Jesus meant. But is there anything else that we can look to? How does the interpretation that Jesus is the rock actually fit in with the rest of the Bible. Can we look at other scriptures and see that that's true? Well, number two, we look at the theological proof. Now, back at the first major heading, I mentioned Matthew 7 and the Sermon on the Mount. And there Jesus talked about the wise man who built his house on the rock. And when we we studied that passage two years ago, And I noted then that whatever interpretation that you take of the rock, it's always going to come back ultimately to Jesus himself. Whether he meant the words, his own words as the rock, or whether he meant the person of Christ, still he is the centerpiece. Christ is the one who's in the middle of it all. Later in Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. That's a quotation from Psalm 118, 22. And throughout the Old Testament, God is continually referred to as the rock of Israel. Now, let me give you just a few passages that show us that. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4, Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His word is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. Several times in Deuteronomy 32, God is referred to as the rock. You may want to circle that reference and read the chapter later to get all of that. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. In the 32nd verse, For who is God save the Lord, and who is a rock save our God? In the 47th verse, The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God, the rock of my salvation. There's a song written about that verse. And we've just scratched the surface of many, many times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it talks about God is the rock. But I want to show you one in the New Testament, and it actually comes from an Old Testament reference. And this is when Paul was teaching the Corinthian church, and he was showing them that there are certain things that are in the Old Testament that are taken to be examples for us, 
so that we can live by, know what God meant by these certain examples. Now, he's explaining in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 how that God brought Israel out of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea. And remember afterwards that when they got on the other side of the sea that they began to murmur? They complained against God because they didn't have, first of all, they had no water to drink. They were very thirsty. And so God said to Moses, strike a rock and water will come out of that rock. Now, I want you to listen to this beautiful connection that's made by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. That sounds like a great connection to our text, doesn't it? Who is the rock of our salvation? Who is the sure foundation upon which the church is built? Is it shaky Peter? Or is it the infallible Son of God? Is he the rock that can never be moved? Well, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're out of time. And so we're going to end today by learning something here from Peter as he looks into the Old Testament. And I want you to notice in this passage of Scripture that his subject is the same as ours today. He's talking about the church. And does he give us any hints in this passage of Scripture about who the church is built on? Well, we look at 1 Peter chapter 2 starting at verse 4. Peter says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now there is the first of Peter's Old Testament connections. This is also Psalm 118 verse 22. This is the one I said that Jesus quoted in Matthew 21. And here Peter confirms that Jesus was the stone that was cast aside by men, but he's the precious one who was chosen by God. In verse 5, he says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, there is where Peter connects his comments to the church. And he says, You, you are the spiritual house of God. And he says, in the Old Testament, the priest offered up sacrifices, physical sacrifices, but you are the people of God, and you offer up spiritual sacrifices. Verse 6, wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now there's Peter's second Old Testament reference, which comes from Isaiah 28, verse 16. And he's telling us that the builders discarded this stone, but this stone is the chief stone. It's made the foundation stone of the building. And what it refers to is that Israel rejected Christ, but God made him the rock upon which the church was built. Verse 7, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they also, they also were appointed. Verse number 8 refers to Isaiah 8.14, and it speaks of Jesus Christ as being a rock that people stumble on. He says to believers, Jesus Christ is precious. 
but there are others that reject him. They stumble on him. When he declares that all people are unrighteous sinners and that everybody is under the wrath and the condemnation of God, people don't like to hear that. And so they stumble on Christ. Now what does all of that tell us? Well, I think it tells us that God never rests the foundation of his church on anything other than Jesus Christ. The Old Testament says that God is the rock. Now we go back to that confession of Peter, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you remember last week I showed you what that phrase means? That Peter meant you are the same essence as God, or in other words, you are God. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the rock of the Old Testament, which is God, is the Christ of the New Testament. That he is the same rock, the only foundation on which the church can be built. So where is the foundation of the church placed? Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this massive stone, upon this foundation stone, upon the one who is precious and chosen by the Father, this is the one on whom the church is built. Now, I have to ask you a question. Which church do you want to be a part of? What church do you want to be a member of? Do you want to be a member of the church of the popes? Do you want to be a member of the church that has placed traditions in the place of the commandments of God? Or do you want to be a part of a church that has its foundation built upon the sure rock of Jesus Christ himself? I want to build my faith on the real rock As the song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. My encouragement to you is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the sure rock, the foundation rock. He's the one upon which the church is built. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to look into the Bible and go to many, many different places to show what you intend by what you say. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of people today and understand that we we need to be a part of a church where Jesus Christ is our foundation, that we don't place our hope in any man, that we don't claim the infallibility of any person, but we know that the only one who is infallible is Jesus Christ himself. And because he is, he is able to give us the righteousness that we need to be right in the eyes of God. We pray, Lord, that you would lay it upon the heart of people to believe, and they will be justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone and by nothing that they do. Lord, we just ask you to speak to hearts today, draw people to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.